So we're in a series called Unlearn, replacing some fears with truth. If you're married, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about here in just a moment. If you're not married, you need to know this is coming, okay? Particularly if you're the guy. If you've got your eyes on a young lady and you're thinking she might be the one, you need to know what you're getting yourself into, okay? This has happened to me multiple times now in 18 and a half years of marriage. It goes something like this. I'm asleep and my wife will suddenly say, honey, I heard a noise. There's someone in the house. I'm asleep. I'm sleeping. I mean, Psalms talks about the sleep that God gives to those who love him. I'm in that sleep, okay? I'm fine. I have no idea. I didn't hear the noise. The woman sinned in the Garden of Eden. It is my opinion that because of that sin, she should be the one responsible to get up and check the noises. But it doesn't work like that, does it? The guys have to check out the noise in the middle of the night. Let me tell you how far this goes. My parents were were divorced when I was very young, and so I would go back and forth between houses. I can remember as an elementary age child, my mom waking me up in the middle of the night because she heard a noise. What is an eight-year-old boy supposed to do? I had taken the one trial week of American karate classes. I knew... There's something called kata. They're basically dance moves for little boys. I knew that. I had seen Karate Kid, and I could do the crane kick anytime. I was ready for that. I can barely do it now. I need some yoga or something for balance. But anyway, I mean, I I felt like I had that going for me. But what am I supposed to do? Truly. I mean, it's this fear that we have. What could be downstairs? What could be going on? What is that noise? I thought it'd be fun. This would be fun if during this message... You know, I'm going to speak for 30 minutes, 35 minutes, and it'd be fun just to have a sound effect, like a water dripping, just, and just mess with y'all for like 30 minutes. That would be good. Some of you would be freaked out. At some point, about 10 minutes from now, with water dripping, just about every 75 seconds, just drop it in. Some, one of you would run out of this room screaming. Or if we could just do like some keys, like jingling, look, look at your spouse, what is that all about? You know, it would be kind of fun. But you add darkness to that, You add a sudden waking up and a rush of adrenaline and you become convinced that there is a demon with long fingernails and a hockey mask somewhere in your house. It's this tremendous fear that grips us. There's an American horror author from the last century who has a great quote about this. He says, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. And that's what I want to talk about today. The fear of the unknown. It takes a lot of forms. It's the fear of losing control. It's the fear of being left out. It's the fear of what if scenarios beyond your control. It's absolute dread over what might happen. And it becomes more than just a mental obstacle for a lot of people and for all of us at different times. It's fear that manifests itself in anxiety and depression For some people, it becomes a sort of life paralysis where you become unwilling to get outside of your own routine and environment. And in a world where knowledge is more readily available than it has ever been. I mean, truly, you don't have to know how to do anything anymore. You just have to know how to Google it and watch it on YouTube. The idea that things can still creep up in our lives beyond our control or understanding is more terrifying than ever. The fear of the unknown. 
In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. We're going to be looking at this story if you want to turn there, if you've got your Bibles. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse 22 here in just a moment. The Apostle Paul is traveling through the world this time, visiting churches, visiting churches he's planted, all kinds of folks. He comes across these folks in Athens, and as he comes into the city, spends a little time there, the Bible says that he notices something. He notices how many idols there are in the city of Athens. There were actually, there have actually been recent archaeological finds, one of which that was just revealed this week, about this very fact. So history and archaeology backing up the account that's in Acts chapter 17 of this idea that these people had all kinds of gods. There was an article that came out this week of some people who used to pray to certain gods in order to cast spells on other people. They had gods for everything in Athens. They had, I'm, I'm sure, gods to different things in nature, gods to different things in Greek mythology and, and all kinds of different things. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely struck by it. They also had something else. The, they believe to, they are smart people. And, and I guess they are smart people. And they believe that part of the evidence of their intellect is how many gods they've discovered. So that they have a God for every area of their lives. I mean, any niche you can think about, it's because they're so brilliant. And they were so brilliant, they actually made sure that they had covered all of their bases with one other very interesting idol. And the Apostle Paul addresses it in Acts chapter 17. He says this beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And we're going to keep going here real real quickly, but just understand. To the unknown God... They feel like that because they've got this one as smart as they are, just in case they are covering their bases. And so the Apostle Paul takes the opportunity to say, let me tell you about the God you do not yet know. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything to everybody. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. It's a powerful sermon. The Apostle Paul takes so many things he knows about God and he puts it in four or five lines and we don't have time to get into all of it today but if you're in a small group and I hope you are I hope that your group will take the opportunity this week to read over those passages those verses in Acts chapter 17 and just look at what the Apostle Paul says about God. If you're in a group as well I would really strongly encourage everybody hold each other accountable to going back and listening to Pastor Brian's message last week because it's so key. Pastor Brian began to explain to us the fear that trumps all the other fears. A right fear, a right view of God. Not viewing God as the one who wants to strike you at any time, but having a correct fear and awe and reverence for God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to instill into these people. 
He's trying to say, listen, there's something more going on here. And I love how he does this in four or five lines. He describes this big, amazing God who gives life to all. Even if you're here today and you do not know him, like the people in Athens who did not know him, he's the giver of life. He's the giver of breath to all mankind. It's this huge statement in this message. But then he brings it down close. This big, incredible God wants you to find him. He has designed this entire world with the purpose that you would find him. And oh, by the way, he's never very far off. This idea of covering the bases, praying to an unknown God, it still happens. Some of you may be doing this today. Here's what a line of thought might sound like to someone who's believing in an unknown God today. Maybe you're here, you don't know him, but you think, you know what? I feel like I got everything figured out. Everything's going pretty good at home. But just in case I missed anything, occasionally I'll do the church thing. Occasionally I'll do the religion thing. Just to cover my bases, just on the outside chance that I may have missed something. You may have never referred to him as the unknown God. Maybe you've referred to him as something like the man upstairs. And I'm just here today to make sure that just in case at the end of my life, if just in case I meet the man upstairs, I want to be able to tell the man upstairs, hey, I was at your place one day and it was pretty good. The music was okay. And hey, did you see when the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Basket came by, uh, I, I put something in there. And so you, we're all square with the house, right? Just to make sure you're just covering your bases. But God wants so much more than that from each of us. He's not the God that we worship just to cover our bases. He's a personal, relational God that desires to have a personal relationship with you. He desires dedication. He desires obedience. He desires faith. He desires trust. And he gives us so much more in return. When the Apostle Paul gets done explaining Jesus to them, they actually poke fun of him because he is speaking in such simple, plain language. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul describes this whole approach to communication as part of his strategy and and ministry. He just says, I just talk about Jesus, and I let the Spirit of God do its work, and that's all we're supposed to do. I mean, too many people try and argue to prove the existence of God. The problem is that at some point, you're going to run into someone, not with a better argument, but they're a better arguer. You may have already encountered them. And running into a better arguer can lead to doubt and feed the lie that there are just a lot of different ways to get to truth. I think for a lot of people, they have this kind of experience in high school or or college. We feel like we're supposed to be so much smarter than the people arguing with us, but we don't have to be. Maybe some of you have had this happen to you as, as an adult, and at some point, someone just made you feel stupid. And as a result of that, you don't cling to the truth of Jesus as tightly when you did when you were younger. You're not living out of the same passion or conviction. And our neighbors look at our lives as Christ followers and say, listen, if they're not really that convinced that this is absolute truth, then what do, what do we care about it? I mean, it looks like these people are just covering their bases. And the, way, and the result is that the way we live our lives is no different than all the people around us who are looking to us to see if there is something more to this faith in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the problem in our culture is not just the cult of Oprah and Deepak Chopra universalism. The problem is timid Christianity. Timid Christians who don't look any different because they're afraid of losing an argument. Listen, our hope is not built on winning the argument. Our hope is built on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a faith that says God has always kept his promises and he will continue to. It's actually a lack of a relationship with God and the lack of of the resulting knowledge of God that causes us to fear the unknown. And we have to replace the fear of the unknown with a trust in the God who knows everything. So what do we need to know about God in order to overcome the fear of the unknown? I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures over the next few minutes. You can write them down. You can follow along there in the app, I believe. But have a look at these. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him To whom we must give account, he sees it all. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He sees it all. He knows it all. There is nothing or no one outside of the view and knowledge of God. The term is omniscience. You would spell it omni-science. It means that God is all-knowing. It means he has never had to learn anything because that would mean at some point he didn't know everything. But nothing takes him by surprise. No circumstance, no tragedy, no new discovery of man, nothing that goes bump in the night. It's an awe-inspiring part of his character. This means that when you don't know what's waiting for you on the other side of the door lurking in the dark, when you don't know what's causing the noise and you're paralyzed by fear, maybe it's the fear of change or something else, you can know a God who knows it all and who has promised to stay by your side through it all. And he not only knows it all, he's not only great, he's not only big, but he knows you. In the book of Jeremiah, God tells the prophet before you are in your mother's womb, I knew you. And that's true of all of us. In Psalm 139, King David says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Bill Bright said, There's not a thought in your mind or a motive in your heart that God does not know. Before you even speak the prayer, he knows it. Before you even have the thought, he knows it. He is an all-powerful, all-knowing God. He knows it all. He knows you. He knows all of it. He knows about your past. He knows about the things you think you're hiding. And maybe you are hiding from everyone else. He knows it all. How does God feel about those things? Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103 says he throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 
I've talked with so many people over the years who have said, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it is. You don't, you don't know how dark it is. And they, they feel like they're, they're holding on to secrets, hurts, habits, hangups, addiction, whatever it is, how someone's hurt them or how they've hurt someone else. And they've, they've got all of this stuff built up inside them. And they think if they don't let it out, that God doesn't know it, but he knows it. And his word says he forgives us when we confess all of those things to him. That act of confession is what he wants from us. We don't have to be afraid to entrust any circumstance to him. Even our darkest secrets and our failures that are unknown to others. He is waiting to be gracious. He's waiting to show mercy. He's on your side. Say, how do you know that? Because Psalm 118 verse six says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can someone do to you when you confess that thing, when you bring that out into the light, like a weight off of you that you've been carrying around for so long? The Lord is on your side. He is greater than any circumstance. He's greater than any sin. He's greater than anything that you might face. Romans 8 verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 56, three, a verse we taught to our kids when they were very young. This can be yours to memorize this week. It goes like this. You'll have it done before I, before you leave. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's as simple as that. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. He is greater than any sickness or disease or hardship or sorrow. And the greatest thing you can do to combat the fear of the unknown is to diligently pursue a relationship with the God who is all of these things and who knows you most. You don't have to get to a certain threshold of knowledge and God doesn't require great faith. He just requires what Jesus described as mustard seed faith. That's all it takes. Bishop N.T. Wright says, it's not great faith we need, it's faith in a great God. I love that. Isaiah 46 verse 9 and 10, God says, I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Pastor Joseph Stoll says, never be afraid to entrust the future to an all-knowing God. I would say it this way. Never be afraid to entrust the unknown to the God who knows it all. Never be afraid to entrust the unknown to the God who knows it all. Listen, the fear of the unknown or the fear of something becoming known can absolutely paralyze you. The fear of what could happen can stagnate your life. It can send you backwards, even back into old habits and relationships that are, that are not God's best for you. But you feel like going back to those things is safe because at least you know what level of pain you're going to be dealing with. It's a strange trap we get ourselves into with the familiar. I mean, familiar can be fatal and familiar can be fatal to a life of faith. There's a story about an Arab chief who has a spy captured and sentenced to death by a Persian army. The general had the strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice between the firing squad and the big black door. 
The moment for execution drew near. And guards brought the spy to this Persian general. What will it be? Asked the general. The firing squad. Or the big black door. The spy that they had captured hesitated for a long time. Finally, he chose the firing squad. A few minutes later, shots rang out, confirming the spy's execution. The general turned to his aide and said, They always prefer the known to the unknown. People fear what they don't know. Yet, we gave him a choice. What lies beyond the big black door, the aide said? Freedom, replied the general. I've only known a few brave enough to take that door. So the fear of the unknown can trap you, can paralyze you, it can squelch you, ultimately it can crush you. But embracing a personal, relational walk with the God who knows it all can ignite the life of faith and propel it forward with a courage and confidence you have not yet known. Author F.B. Meyer, I was reading this week, he gives this thought on this. He says, what is true of the natural qualities of the soul is preeminently true of faith. So long as we are quietly at rest amid favorable and undisturbed surroundings, faith sleeps and is undeveloped within us. But when we are pushed out from those surroundings with nothing but God to look to, then faith grows suddenly into a master principle of life. As long as the bird lingers by the nest, it will not know the luxury of flight. As long as the trembling boy holds to the bank or toes to the bottom, he will not learn the ecstasy of battling with the ocean wave. Listen, we can find adventure in what seems like the simplest of unknown places when we are willing to follow God in obedience. We can find adventure in the simplest of places, like in Daytona Beach as a small group leader to eighth grade boys. <laughs> I have seen people over 18 and a half years of this church. We have different seasons where we'll make opportunities available. Our surge camp coming up for kids, our, our rush camp, but serving every week, greeting people in the parking lot or our kids right now and, and other places in this building standing at a door, simple things. And I've seen people sign up to be a part of these things and burst into tears. Burst into tears at the fear of what might happen to them. The fear of putting themselves out there and how will people respond. The fear of being a part of something feels so much larger and is so much larger than each of us individually. The fear of being a part of a small group. As guys, I've seen a lot of guys and, you know, we're good at kind of hiding some of these fears behind some really great sarcastic comments, some tremendous wit. But it's fear. 
It's fear of walking into a circle of people and maybe feeling like, I, maybe I won't know enough. Maybe I won't measure up. I, I don't know. Maybe it's fear that stopped you from going to Boston on a missions trip with Yankees or to places like Cuba or Burkina Faso or Guatemala. I've seen people on everything that I've just mentioned. I've seen people sign up, put themselves out there and burst into tears. It's a fear of the unknown, but it's also a fear that someone might discover something about you or about your own inadequacy, whatever it might be. But it's also this type of fear, the unknown of how people might respond that prevents us from showing God's kindness to a friend in need or talking about God or with a neighbor or with a coworker, or someone across the street. What might they think of you? What if they ask me a question? I don't know what will happen in this moment. We have a tendency to find great security in the not doing. I love the story of, of Moses in the Old Testament. You know the story of, of Moses where he talks to the burning bush? Have you read any of Exodus 3? Have you seen the movie? If you've seen the movie, you're, you're, it's good enough. It's fine. Charlton Heston's great, Moses. In rabbinical circles, they talk about Moses as a man who's basically in a rut. At this point in Moses' life, he has been a shepherd for about 40 years. All he has known is sheep. And rabbis love asking questions like, how many days did Moses walk by the bush before he deviated enough to find out what was going on. It doesn't look like that in the movie. It just looks like the bush burst and it wasn't burning and so he went and checked it out and maybe that's how it happened, I don't know. But in some circles they ask questions like, how long had the bush been burning? And finally the moment comes in Exodus 3 where Moses says, okay, I'll turn to the side, I'll go look at this thing, I'll stop walking my normal path to see this incredible sight. God speaks to him. Tells him he's on holy ground. Take off your your sandals, Moses. And Moses gets this incredible introduction to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the I am. The first time this name of God is used in scripture, it means the self-existent, always constant one. And then in Exodus 4, the conversation takes just a little turn. And you've probably seen this before, but I want you to See these verses and then put pause on what you know in the rest of the story. Exodus 4 verse 2 says this. The Lord said to him, Moses, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. Now just stop right there. It's a shepherd's staff. You say that sounds kind of simple. It's everything to the shepherd. It's his identity. It's his security. It can be used for protection. It's his vocation. It's how he made his living. Throw it down, God said to Moses. What if Moses had never thrown down the staff? It's in that moment that the signs and wonders begin that would ultimately lead Moses to partnering with God and leading the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt because he was willing to lay down the familiar for something he could not yet have begun to understand. 
Some 1,500 years later, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew. And Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. They're fishermen. It's what they know. It's what they do. It's how they provide. What if Simon Peter had never dropped the net? A few moments later in Mark's description, there are James and John, the sons of thunder. What a great nickname. My nicknames were never that cool, by the way. You can imagine. James and John are fishermen fishing with their dad. They're in the family business. Follow me, Jesus says. And they leave old dad in the boat and follow Jesus. What if they hadn't? What if the good things you are doing in your life, even the things you are doing for God right now, are the very things he's asking you to let go of? There's nothing wrong with those good things as long as you're willing to put them down for the sake of what God might want to do. What if Moses had never turned to look? What if the guys had never stopped fishing? Think of the stories, the experiences, the relationships they all would have missed out on. They would never know the experience of truly walking with God. They would only know what they've been taught. And too many people who are followers of Jesus truly are dealing with an unknown God because they've been unwilling to follow him even in simple moments of obedience and trust. But you discover the greatest knowns, the greatest constants about God when you're willing to step out into the unknown. It's when you step out in faith to follow God into the unknown that you find out how great he is, how good he is, that he is always sovereign, that his love is always unconditional and that it endures forever and that it never never fails, that his faithfulness is always everlasting, that he always delivers on his promises and that he is always present. You discover the greatest knowns about God when you trust him with all of the unknowns and you will never be disappointed when you exchange the fear of the unknown for the God who knows it all. You'll never be disappointed. So what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What surprised you in the middle of the night? What was it? What was the noise? Did you turn and look? Did you go and investigate? Is there something so simple that God just wants you to trust him with? The simplest of things can lead to the greatest of adventures with faith in God. Some of you are absolutely paralyzed and you have been for a long time by fear, by anxiety, by depression. Some of you have even gone back into old habits because it's what you know and freedom is too scary. On Tuesday of this week, I read this psalm. I feel like it covers this so well. And then I read it in Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. And I want to close with it. They may have the words on the screen. Either way, I want you to listen to it. It's Psalm 91. And it's what I believe God wanted me to read for us to close this time. 
You who sit down in the high God's presence, spend the night in Shaddai's shadow. Say this, God, you're my refuge. I trust in you and I'm safe. That's right. He rescues you from hidden traps, shields you from deadly hazards. His huge, outstretched arms protect you. Under them, you're perfectly safe. His arms fend off all harm. Fear nothing. Not wild wolves in the night, not flying arrows in the day, not disease that prowls through the darkness, not disaster that erupts at high noon. Even though others succumb all around, drop like flies right and left, no harm will even graze you. You'll stand untouched. Watch it all from a distance. Watch the wicked turn into corpses. Yes, because God's your refuge. The high God, your very own home. Evil can't get close to you. Harm can't even get through the door. He ordered his angels to guard you wherever you go. If you stumble, they'll catch you. Their job is to keep you from falling. You'll walk unharmed among lions and snakes and kick young lions and serpents from the path. If you'll hold on to me for dear life, says God, I'll get you out of any trouble. I'll give you the best of care. If you'll only get to know and trust me, Call me and I'll answer, be at your side in bad times. I'll rescue you, then throw you a party. I'll give you a long life, give you a long drink of salvation. You will never be disappointed when you exchange the fear of the unknown with the God who knows it all. He's got you every time. He's got you every time. Would you you bow your heads? Let's close this time in prayer. I know that there are some who've walked in here today. I believe that there are people who walk in here every Sunday. And your greatest fear right now really is the God you do not know. And you're just covering a base. I want you to know this big God of refuge with his huge arms is not just creator, God of the universe, sovereign. He is the God who wants a personal relationship with you as the scripture showed us today. How do you do that? If you would be willing in this moment to call upon the name of the Lord, according to scripture, you will be saved. You will enter into a relationship with God by believing in his plan for your life and his son, Jesus Christ. Send his son to die on the cross for you forgive you of your sins, all of your shortcomings, all the ways that you've missed the mark. He's risen from the dead that you might have eternal life. If you would confess to him in a prayer that you believe that, you're putting your faith and trust in that, you begin a relationship, a walk with him. If you want to do that right now, sitting in your seat, you can pray a prayer like this one. I would invite you to do right now. God, I come to you right now. I'm, I'm praying a prayer. I've not done this in this way before. But God, something has changed today. I believe there's something personal here. And I want to enter into a personal relationship with you. And I can do that today because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, for my sins. Change my mind, God, of trying to do life on my own. I want to do life with you. And I believe that your son Jesus is resurrected today. 
that I might have eternal life. Trust in that today. Thank you, God, for calling me your son or your daughter. In the name of Jesus, I pray.